I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that you will turn in them to Zephaniah 3. And if uh, one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs would be a, uh, an assistance to you to use, you can find our passage on page 790. And if you'd like to keep one of those Bibles, we'd love for you to do that. If it would serve you to use or give to somebody else. That would please us very much. Zephaniah 3. Well, have you all got your Christmas shopping done yet? Not me. In just one week, it's Christmas Eve. And that doesn't seem real. My family and I will be out of town visiting with Kate's family. Looking forward to that. Uh, But as I said earlier, I know you will all be richly blessed to gather next Sunday just like every other Sunday and then in the evening for our tradition of gathering for carols and scripture lessons. I remember pretty vividly the sheer delight and excitement that accompanied the reality that Christmas was just around the corner. Of course, as an adult with much more responsibilities to the accompany Christmas time, it's a little less, it's a little different. I don't know if I should say less delightful, but it's a little different. As a kid, it promised time off from school, time with perhaps some cousins, opening presents, eating cookies at the right time, right mom? (laughs) Watching Christmas movies, listening to Christmas music, enjoying the Christmas lights. These all just consumed my thinking as I waited for Christmas to arrive. And you know, in a similar way, the people of God in Zephaniah's day were waiting. They were waiting for the Lord to intervene on their behalf, to rescue them from their enemies and to restore them to their place in God's favor. Because they, God's people, had failed in their covenant duties. They had not been faithful to the covenant between them and their God. And of course, this was a recurring problem. It wasn't only the case for the people in Zephaniah's day, that no matter how faithful God was to his people, his people continued to sin, to break his law, to violate the covenant that he made with them, and to therefore bring upon themselves his discipline and judgment even as he sought to draw them back into a restored relationship with him. In fact, there are some similarities between what's going on in the context of Zephaniah's prophecy and the prophecy of Micah that we looked at last week. If you were here last week, a lot of what I just said about the unfaithfulness of the people and the message of the Lord coming to them as as a result should sound somewhat familiar to you. Micah had prophesied that the destruction of the Lord was coming as punishment because of their lack of faithfulness to him, and that punishment was on its way. Well, what do you know? Five to ten years later, Assyria invaded Israel and its surrounding territories. And so many Jews were exiled, and messages from God through his prophets were for a time no longer. It was about 80 years or so. And during that time, the infamous and evil kings of Judah, Manasseh, and Ammon were reigning, and things were terrible. Idolatry was rampant. The simultaneous worship of Yahweh 
and Baal, which was abominable. And if you have a hard time imagining what that would look like, just imagine if we had a, an idol in this room, perhaps a Hindu idol, just as an example, to pray to as part of an order of worship of ours. They were doing horrendous and abominable things like sacrificing their children to the idol Molech. 2 Kings chapter 21, it says that Manasseh, the king, burned his own son as an offering to Molech. And Manasseh's other son, Ammon, was no better. In fact, it was so bad that it was only two years into his reign that some of his servants conspired to assassinate him, and they succeeded and put his eight-year-old son in his place. And so it was that Josiah was crowned king of Judah at eight years old. And if you've heard of Josiah, you probably know that he led the way in reforming Judah according to the book of the law. But that didn't happen till about 20 years later. Josiah became king of Judah in about 640 BC. And then in 626 BC, Zephaniah's ministry begins. And then five years later, the book of the law is found and read, and Josiah begins to lead Judah towards some real spiritual reform. So that's your history lesson for the day. I hope you caught all that. It's during that time that Zephaniah is speaking on God's behalf. He's prophesying. And as I said last week regarding Micah's prophecy, we don't get the benefit of today at least, of having read through and studied all of Zephaniah's prophecy together before arriving at our text for today, which comes at the end of the book. So let me just try to boil it down to the core issue that Zephaniah is speaking about. In the very first chapter of Zephaniah, four times in the ESV, you will see the phrase, the day of the Lord. It's a recurring theme, might say the theme of Zephaniah, this phrase that is used to describe God's arrival, God's coming. And of course, God's arrival is good news for those who are on his side, but it's also bad news for those who aren't. It's far more serious than the lyric we all hear at the grocery store today that Santa Claus is coming to, down, to town and he knows if you've been bad or good. It's far more serious than that. Look at verses 4 through 7 of chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. Part of Zephaniah's message is that Judah is in trouble. God's people are in trouble. They would have thought of themselves, at least some of them, as being on God's side, and so the day of the Lord being good news for them. But God's judgment apparently is coming to them because they had broken the covenant. Chapter 2 then goes on to say that non Israel, the nations, 
will be judged for their wickedness too. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. And if you don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah suffered a horrible fate earlier in biblical history. A land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. And then before our text in chapter 3, God goes on to say essentially that no one is exempt from his judgment when the day arrives. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So what's Zephaniah about? The day of the Lord. The arrival of God, of Yahweh, to bring judgment on his enemies and joy to his people. And of course, it's mostly, Zephaniah, mostly a somber and serious tone. But it is hopeful too. Because the day of the Lord, as I already said, is good news for his people, even while it is bad news for those whom he is against. And we see this shift in tone when we come to verse 9 of chapter 3, when hope comes in a bit more clearly. Let's read all of the rest of chapter 3 together before we focus in on a handful of them in the middle. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain." I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. 
Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is indeed a promise of hope and of restoration of joy. And that's where we'll focus the rest of our time, zooming in together, particularly on verses 14 through 17. As I was putting together the plan to look at these minor prophets passages for Christmas time, those four verses, 14 through 17, stood out to me as needful for us to focus on and to look at regarding this time of celebration of the incarnation and birth of Jesus at the Advent season. And in particular, the hope that this passage contains for the fearful. Look at how verse 15 ends and the verse 16 begins. You shall never again fear. And on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. In this passage, set in this whole message, there is a call to not fear alongside a somewhat fearsome message. Kind of reminds me of the day in 2003 when I made a phone call home back when cell phones were a bit newer because I had flipped my car. And the first thing that I said as I recalled to my parents were, first of all, don't worry, I'm okay. And I hoped that that would assure my parents, even as I was about to give them some troubling news. I'm not sure it did much good hearing, first of all, I'm okay, don't worry. Probably sparked a bit more fear in them. But anyway, I wonder how many of the Jews hearing Zephaniah's message were afraid because of the message that had to do with judgment against them. I suspect not enough of them were afraid enough. I wonder if Zephaniah's call to courage had to do with the reality of how somber and frightening the rest of his message was, even more than that the people were repentantly fearful. Either way, it's an important and hope-filled assurance that Zephaniah gives to them. And it is, it is an assurance set in contrast with this fearsome message of judgment that was coming for them and their enemies. And on the front end of this passage in verse 14, there are four alternative responses to fear. Now, I don't think that Zephaniah is a message explicitly about not fearing, and so we're not going to linger on this, but I do want to just notice what verse 14 says. Look again. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. These are commands that stand in contrast to the fear identified in verses 15 and 16. And so just very quickly, look at these four alternatives to fear. The first is singing. As Zephaniah's message is winding down after these words of woe are pronounced on his foes at his coming, he speaks words of gracious assurance to his people and calls them to sing in response. 
And I'm calling singing in this context organized praise. There's lyrics, there's melody, there's rhythm, there's harmony perhaps. It's deliberate and it's purposeful. It might not always be pretty depending on who's singing, but it has always got intention behind it. I'm sure you can do it without realizing it. You can burst into singing as a spontaneous act. But what I mean is it's different than a mere vocalization. It's not merely talking. It's certainly not grunting. It's not clearing your throat. It's singing. And God calls people of Judah, the people of Judah, to respond to the good news about his coming, that he would preserve and care for a remnant responding to that news in singing. Here's another one. In the second line, he calls them to shout. And this one is different than singing. It's Pretty simply, just an outburst, an overflow of emotion. You don't have to make melody or have some sort of consistent rhythm. You don't even have to use an actual word. A shout in this context is just this result of the overflow of inner emotion and passion in response to God's good news. Wickedness will be punished, but I will graciously save some. So shout. Hearing that news was cause for praise, for a shout of excitement and joy. Speaking of joy, that's the third one. Rejoice. That's called for in this third line, to rejoice. And again, I don't want to go down this rabbit trail too far, as tempting as it might be. This isn't the meat of Zephaniah's message, but he is calling for real rejoicing. Not something put upon or fake. Not a pretend show of happiness, but real rejoicing. And then finally, he calls for them to exult. And that's not a word that I frequently use. My shot at a definition is jubilant pleasure. The Hebrew lexicon that I looked at said to express exceeding joy, which makes it sound somewhat synonymous to rejoice, which is probably why it's right next to it in Zephaniah's words. So you get the picture here. Zephaniah's hopeful message of future restoration that is strategically placed at the end of his overall message regarding the arrival of God to judge and save calls for a response of joy-filled praise. But let's get a little more specific now. Why exactly should the people of God find what Zephaniah is saying on behalf of God good news? Well, I see three reasons for this call to not be afraid. And all of them really are in verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So the first reason is the removal of punishment, which you could just call grace. Zephaniah is heralding this message that God's people would not bear the consequences of their sins forever. It was going to be painful, and it would continue to be painful for his people because of their sin, but the Lord was on the move, and he had, they had reason to hope. The removal of their sins penalty was a task that God was committed to. Now, We don't get a clear window into exactly how many of the Jews at that moment would have had their spiritual wits about them, but some of them may have been looking around at the literal and figurative rubble of what was once their beloved nation and been a bit troubled by it. And I suspect some of us may be thinking 
of connections to our own nation and the trouble we see around us. But let me just caution you to not be too quick to draw parallels between our nation and theirs at that time because it is not apples to apples. We have not been sieged or invaded or exiled from our homeland. They were. A Jew at that time was looking around at his or her nation and would have perhaps been hopeful to hear Zephaniah's message that God was committed to bringing an end to what they saw around them, these consequences of their sin, committed to redeeming them, committed to restoring them in relationship and fellowship with him. And that's what the first line of verse 15 is saying. The judgments against you have been taken away. This was grace from a gracious God of mercy and forgiveness and restoration. So that's that first reason not to be afraid because of the gracious removal of punishment. The second is because of the defeat of the enemy, the triumph of God and his people. But remember, at this time, Judah was still in the midst of Assyrian oppression and exile. And so as they heard this, some of the Jews may have been a bit confused. So, Zephaniah, old buddy, what I'm hearing you say is that the enemy has already been defeated, but as far as I can see, there are plenty of Assyrians around here still. But that was the point. This was hope for people in a seemingly hopeless predicament. Zephaniah's message was that their enemy's defeat was a certainty, and he said it to people with, around him with enemies around them. And that leads to the third reason, because someone else was with them besides the enemy. Look at the last part of verse 15 again. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And so that third reason is the presence of God. God confronts them with the reality of the wicked acts that they had committed as a nation, and then he says also, your punishments have been removed. They look around at the enemy that has invaded them and corrupted them spiritually and religiously, and God says, your enemies are defeated. They've heard from Zephaniah that the righteous judge is coming to execute judgment. And God also says, I am with you. And that is massively important. Because who is it that was saying this? The Lord in the middle of verse 15. Perhaps you know this already, but for those of you who don't, whenever you see in an English Bible the phrase, the Lord, with the word Lord in small caps, that is an indication to you that in the original language, that was the word for Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God. And so for them to hear that Yahweh is with you, even as they had heard that Yahweh's day of judgment is on its way, perhaps they were going, Wait a minute, that's the same guy. That's the one who exiled us. The one whose covenant we broke. The one who is going to come and judge. He's actually not forsaking us. He's with us. 
among us? So as you can see, this is deeply covenantal language. The God who removed them from His presence because of their sin was speaking in terms of being with them. And that is astonishing. The ears of the Jews in Zephaniah's day should at least have perked up a bit to hear this. Because as far as they understood, God was now far off because of their sin. And not only far off, but on His way in judgment. And yet He says, Yahweh is in your midst. Perhaps you know about a tornado in uh, Nashville at one time. I saw this video of a family in their basement waiting for the tornado, greatly troubled, and the parents assuring their poor children the family was fine, and actually their house was, was damaged, but not as bad as it could have been. And the parents are saying, it's okay, we're right here. But if you try to parallel that with what's going on here, God is the tornado that's on its way. And he's the parent saying, don't worry, I'm here. And it's not just in verse 15 that he says that. Look at the beginning of verse 17. He says it there too. The Lord, there it is again, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. So in verse 15, it's the king. And in verse 17, it's the warrior savior. The same one who's the judge is the one who will save from judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment for his enemies and joy for his people because his enemies will be destroyed and his people will be saved. What an amazing, gracious, powerful Savior. Now, I wonder if you've been following along so far and listening and maybe been a little bit distracted by the fact that what Zephaniah said in these verses wasn't really coming true for the people of Judah at that moment. The language certainly makes it sound like the removal of their punishment, the defeat of their enemies, and the return of God's presence to His people had already happened, doesn't it? In these verses here, in verse 15, He has taken away the judgments. He has cleared away your enemies. He is in your midst. But of course, that couldn't have been the case. Not really. We actually know from the rest of biblical history what happened next. The people of Israel continued to sin and bear the consequences for their sin long after this message from Zephaniah. We also know that even though Assyria was on their way out and Josiah's godly kingship was on the rise at the time of Zephaniah's ministry, Babylon was just over the horizon. And Josiah didn't live forever. And none of these people in Judah, when Zephaniah ministered, lived to see a day when the Lord came to wipe out all his enemies forever and to restore his people back into an Eden-like fellowship. So it's simply not the case that Zephaniah was saying exactly, don't be afraid, people of God, it's all over now. So if this was not actually about their present reality then, what was it that Zephaniah actually meant? It can't have meant that the Jews in that moment were not going to suffer any more consequences of their sin ever. 
It can't mean that none of their enemies would prevail against them ever again. And it can't have meant that fellowship with the Lord had been restored to the days of the Garden of Eden. Rather, Zephaniah was referring to something farther in the future and using present terms to describe it. And here's how we should think of what Zephaniah is saying. He was prophesying about the future reality that God's people would experience because of what he would accomplish through Jesus. That's how we have to understand what Zephaniah is saying. And it's the key to understanding how this message from Zephaniah is also a message of hope for the fearful today. Because Zephaniah was prophesying about the future reality that God's people would experience because of what God would accomplish through Jesus. Think again about what verses 15 through 17 is speaking about. Your punishment is removed, your enemy is defeated, and your king is with you. So don't be afraid. Friends, isn't this exactly what Jesus was born in the manger to do? The Son of God come to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. He walked among us. He lived life perfectly according to God's law. He suffered and died as a sacrifice in the place for sinners, removing their punishment from them. And when he was raised from the dead, he was triumphant over the enemies of sin and death and Satan, the ultimate enemies of God's people. Friends, do you see? This is the gospel. Jesus' arrival in the manger in Bethlehem was the key, the linchpin to the plan of God to bring about the removal of punishment, the defeat of the enemy, and the restoration to fellowship with him. Because as the rest of the New Testament teaches, and Jesus says it himself, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Faith in Jesus as the Messiah of God, as the sent one of God, as God's chosen king sent to bring people into a relationship with him through the work of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And I hope that if you've never embraced Jesus as Savior, that today will be the day. We, as we do every week, we'll have a a team in the back, standing in the back, wearing lanyards that say prayer team on it. They are qualified and eager and ready to take a few moments to talk with you if you have questions and pray with you about anything. Now, though Zephaniah's message of hope that a day of removed punishment and restored fellowship in the defeat of the enemy was coming, certainly had a spiritual fulfillment in Jesus, Zephaniah's message was not only a spiritual one. Because when we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible, not Revelations, but Revelation, which is a vision that John received from Jesus, has some things in common with Zephaniah. And put simply, Revelation is also a book about the judgment of God on sin and hope for his people. 
And the image that Revelation portrays is the actual and final fulfillment of the promise of God's judgment on his enemies and the real restoration of his people. For example, just look on the screen at Revelation 22, 3-5. I love that we read this together in E412 this morning and Brian and I didn't even talk about it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is just a small example of the image that we get in Revelation of the final state of God's dwelling with his people with all sin eliminated forever. That's where God's redemption plan is ultimately headed. And that is what is ultimately in view in Zephaniah. Zephaniah's assurance that God's people's punishment was removed, that their enemy was defeated, and that God was with them was not saying that they did not need to be afraid because that was their present reality. Rather, it was a promise regarding their future reality that led to the elimination of any felt need to be afraid. A future reality that was yet to come for them when the final salvation of all of God's people would be complete and when every enemy of God and his people is eliminated and when his people dwell secure in his presence as Revelation 22 depicts for us. That day will come when Christ returns to consummate the final chapter of redemption's story. And the whole reason that it is a certain hope-inspiring future reality is that he has come already the first time to take the punishment for sin on himself, to win the war with sin and with the evil one, and to be God with us, Emmanuel. And so, friends, you see, Zephaniah 3 is more of a prophecy about the second coming of the Messiah than it is a prophecy about his first coming. But the second coming doesn't happen without the first. And so in a real way, this is very much a passage that points us to Christmas, that points us to Bethlehem. When Jesus came, as John says, to tabernacle with us, to bring and be God's presence with us and he came to do war with the enemy and win at the cross and at the empty tomb he came to make and to be the perfect sacrifice for sin he bore god's wrath in the place of unworthy sinners removing the punishment that they deserve from them and he did this so that all who trust in him can experience exactly what Zephaniah 3 is talking about in its fullest sense, one day and spiritually now. And so you see, Zephaniah 3 does give us a lot of reason for hope. Because the future that it's ultimately pointing to is the same future that we anticipate as God's people today. A future that is secure and certain 
for you, my dear brother and sister in Christ. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Advent, at Christmas time. And you know, we can, even though I encourage us not to think of it as apples to apples, we can relate to the Jews of Zephaniah's day. Reading and hearing this message probably led at least some of them to groan and long for the day when the words would come true. And that's how we feel. But there's a crucial difference between them and us. And it's Jesus. Jesus hadn't come yet from their vantage point in history, but he has come to us from our vantage point in redemptive history. And his arrival is the key to the whole thing. While we look back at it, we also look forward to the hope that is yet to come at the end. And that puts us in this difficult middle time place. We call it sometimes the already and not yet. Because from where we stand in redemptive history, Christ has already come to inaugurate what God promised in Zephaniah 3, but he has not yet returned to consummate it. He has already won the war against the enemy, but he has not yet finalized all of it by throwing the enemy into hell. He has come to bring God to us, but he has not yet renovated the earth and reestablished the paradise that he originally made. And so we live in the middle. And living in the middle is hard. Waiting is hard, just as it is hard for children to wait for Christmas. A lot of the problems that Judah was dealing with are the same kinds of problems that we deal with and see around us. We see political instability. So did they. Religious syncretism. We do. So did they. Chaotic, abominable wickedness. We see that. And so did they. A world just filled with bad news. And there are a lot of options, therefore, in front of our eyes regarding what to fear. We've got a lot of choices on the shelf. Income, finance-related fears. Parenting, marriage, family-related fears. National, geopolitical fears. Health and safety-related fears. Friends, the world is filled with reasons to fear. But you know, worse than anything and everything else in this world that you can look around at and be afraid of is what you see when you look inward. Friends, far more problematic than any family drama, any political uncertainty, any church division, any health problem is our own hearts. The worst problem that we have, the greatest reason that the people that God has made have to fear is the danger that we have put ourselves in because of our very own sins. Friends, listen, you could live in a morally upstanding nation. You could have all the money that you need or more than you need. You could have perfectly behaved children. You could have the ideal spouse. Why was that so hard to say? 
You could have an ideal spouse. You could have none of the health problems that are affecting your life, and you would still need Jesus. You see, we often just assume that our sinful actions and thoughts are due to the circumstances around us. Oh, if only the Lord would just remove these difficult people. Or if God would just intervene and change my job situation. Or if only we could get XYZ government political changes in place. Or if we could just convince this one family member to change their ways, then my chances of sinning would be much lower. And friends, of course, this was the problem for the Jews. 700 years after Zephaniah, when Jesus arrived, laid claim to his title as the Messiah and called sinners to repentance. That's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, I'm here to fix all your external circumstances. Rome is going away. Everything's going to be better. But what he came to do was bring the solution to humanity's greatest problem, which was their sin that kept them from God. That's what's at the heart of the Lord's call through Zephaniah not to fear. Those who are the Lord's, those whom he graciously restored and saved, do not need to fear their greatest problem because it is into that fearsome situation that our Lord has come to step into this sinful world, to bear the suffering that we have created to bring upon himself the judgment for sin. And he has come and conquered. Friends, the baby in the manger was not only a helpless human in the moments of his birth, even though he was that. He was also the agent of the day of the Lord. The agent of of the arrival of God. He was the Savior and King who had come to bring restoration and redemption to all who would turn to Him in faith and the agent who would return one day to bring judgment and the final end of all things. So no wonder the angels that proclaimed His birth assured the shepherds that there was no need to fear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The Savior, the Lord, had come to dwell in the midst of His people, exactly as Zephaniah had said. The arrival of Jesus as the baby in the manger was the start of it all coming true. Interesting, isn't it, that God's people in verse 14 of Zephaniah 3 are called to sing praise to Him? But then just three verses later, what does it say in verse 17? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. And He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, this says that He sings with joy over you if you are one of His children. Have you ever thought about that? Our God is not a grumpy old grandpa, man upstairs type nonsense, just constantly annoyed with us. He's not Santa Claus, sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, all that creepy stuff. He is a loving father who delights in his children. 
who delights in his people, those who are precious and beloved to him. So no wonder Zephaniah says this word from the Lord calling for us to sing and to praise and to exult and to rejoice. How could God's people be kept from singing the praises of the newborn king? I opened our service this morning with that first line of a Christmas carol. I said, I just learned this year words by someone I'd never heard of named M. Lee Souter. And it said, I said this, and then I'll read you the last stanza as well. All poor men and humble, all lame men who stumble, come haste ye, nor feel ye afraid. For Jesus, our treasure, with love past all measure, in lowly poor manger was laid. And the response at the end of the carol is this. Then haste we to show him the praises we owe him. Our service he ne'er or never can despise or turn away, whose love still is able to show us that stable where softly in manger he lies. Friends, may we, with our hope fixed firmly on this Christ, on our Christ, remember that the future reality that Zephaniah spoke of was a future that all God's people, including us, will experience because of all that God has accomplished through Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to show you the praises that you deserve as a response to all that you have done. We are poor, lowly, humble, lame, stumbling humanity. And yet we come hastening without fear <clears throat> to your presence because of our Christ, our great treasure who lovingly has come to us. Help us not to be afraid of the external circumstances that do trouble and affect us because you have already dealt with our greatest need, which is coming and conquering for us. Removing the punishment for sin, defeating the enemy, and restoring, bringing restoration to all who come to you in faith. May our hearts and our meditations and the words of our mouths be dedicated and devoted to these things throughout this next week, looking forward to Christmas Day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Let's take a few more minutes and just quietly pray in our own hearts and meditate on God's Word.